This week on Conversations of Inspiration, I'm speaking to Lord Curran Bellamoria, CBE founder of Cobra Beers. Curran founded Cobra Beer in 1989 with the purpose to create a less gassy lager, more suitable for drinking with food, especially curries. With a student debt of £20,000 and not much else, he took on the giants. Cobra Beer found its popularity in the country that was fast becoming a nation of curryaholics. And due to Curran's drive, passion, ambition and clever marketing angles, Cobra grew to become a global brand which now turns over £126 million a year. I had the honour of meeting Curran in his London offices, where we had a conversation about business, but more I came away with so many soulful life lessons. We spoke deeply about the ways to spot a gap in the market, how being a good leader is based on having and practising your strong values, and how do we navigate business in this uncertain time we're living in. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your frown. I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses, and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. I cannot tell you what a huge honour it is to be sitting opposite you today. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. First of all, you have such an interesting and diverse story. I'd love the honour of hearing it firsthand. What led you to create Cobra Beers? You often ask yourself, in fact, how did I get to where I am today? And you think back to when you were a little boy and of course, like any little boy, I wanted to be a pilot and, um, or be in the army like my father. And uh, as I grew older, I realized that uh, I probably wanted to pursue a path in business of some sort. And I thought education was the most important thing. And I, I graduated in India at a very young age of 19. And I skipped a couple of years. I got a lucky break. And then I came to the UK to study like my family had for three generations uh, from India. And uh, I uh, qualified as a chartered accountant with EY in the city of London. And that was a great grounding in business and exposure, different businesses of all sizes. Uh, And I did a law degree at Cambridge. What those two things taught me, I didn't want to be a career lawyer and I didn't want to be a career accountant. (laughs) But they were both extremely useful. And uh, I loved my time at Cambridge. uh, And I I really appreciated what I learned about business qualifying as a chartered accountant. It was while I was studying in London and at Cambridge that I came up with the idea for Cobra Beer. And it was a very simple idea where, as a consumer, I've always loved beer (laughs) from the time I was allowed to drink it. And I found I was very disappointed with the beers that I would be presented with in a pub or in an Indian restaurant. The lagers were just very 
fizzy and bland and bloating and, and harsh and difficult to drink on their own and also with food because they made you very bloated. Mm -hmm. And I said, this is not nice. And an English friend of mine introduced me to English ale, to real ale, English bitter, which I took an instant liking to. And I loved them. But I found I could drink them happily on their own in a pub, but I could not drink ale with food because the ale was too bitter and too heavy. And I kept reflecting on this and saying, this, this is not right. Why don't I produce a beer that has a refreshment of a lager and the smoothness of an ale combined that would be globally appealing, easy to drink on its own, and in particular with food and all food? including curry and Indian food. <laughs> so that was my idea. Now, ideas are one thing, as we all know, yes. that lots of people yes. have ideas. Putting them into action is another. And so I had this idea. It was not a eureka moment. It was an idea that evolved. And then when I finished my studies, I thought, well, do I become an investment banker? I, no, actually, I want to do my own thing. Why don't I strike it out on my own? And I teamed up with my a childhood friend of mine, my first business my business partner, Arjun Reddy. We're both from Hyderabad in India. Our families knew each other for four generations. Mm -hmm. And so there was instant trust. Yeah. And we really got on well. And we started, he was working during the day. I was working during the day, helping a friend out with a new publishing business. And we'd meet in the evenings in Fulham. Uh, I was renting a room from my friend. And so we'd meet, the kitchen table was our first office table. And the beer idea was too big an idea. And so we started first importing products from India. And I had just led the Cambridge University polo team on its first ever tour of India. Oh and we'd goodness. beat in Oxford that, day, that year. And I came back from India with some sample polo sticks that the stick maker said, could you try and sell some in the UK? And that was my first business venture. I started selling polo sticks. We sold them to contacts of mine in the polo industry, to Lily Whites, to Harrods, to the Royal Family Saddlers. We were in business. And then we started importing other products from India, um, leather and silk products, which we sold into Selfridges, very uh, delicately gold-embroidered silk clothes, garments, that we sold to boutiques in Knightsbridge, to outlets like Whistles. Even in those days, they would retail at a £1,000 each. Oh and we built up experience importing products mm -hmm. from India and selling them and marketing them here in the UK. And it also taught me lots of lessons because there were lots of dead ends mm -hmm. um, where there's, I always believe as an entrepreneur, one of the mantras of an entrepreneur is never give up. But ironically and completely contradictory is you've also got to know when to give up. Yes. And if you're hitting a brick wall, there's no point carrying on if you can't get to the other side. And we had many ideas that got, never got off the ground. For example, you go to Hyderabad in India, where we're from, uh, and any... Any woman who goes to Hyderabad will buy a string of pearls mm -hmm. because Hyderabad has been famous for pearls and it's a tradition that's built up. So we said, we will corner the world pearl market. We couldn't sell one string of pearls <laughs> because the <laughs> Japanese pearls were much better quality, much more competitive in price. And so yeah. we gave that idea up. We were given the license through our contacts in India to sell the biggest selling bath towel brand in India called Bombay Dying. Anyone in India knows Bombay Dying for sheets and, and, and uh, bath towels. And we thought, wow, Bombay Dying bath towels, licensed to print money. We couldn't sell one bath towel because the Portuguese bath towels <laughs> were much closer, better. less freight, better quality, and better price. 
we couldn't sell a single bath towel. So we learned lots of lessons, uh, but it did get us off the ground. And sitting in the background was this big idea. And then luck plays a very important part. And uh, my favorite definition of luck is when determination meets opportunity. And we got a chance introduction through our mentor. And it's very important to have a mentor when you start in business. And we were very lucky. My business partner's uncle was our mentor, retired wing commander from the Royal Indian Air Force. He had worked for Air India around the world. He was a well-traveled businessman and helped us hugely. And through him, we got an introduction to the owners of Mysore Brewery in Bangalore in India. And Bangalore was the home of beer in India. And uh, they'd never exported beer before. And I said, this is my beer idea. Would you be interested in making my beer for me? That's where it all started. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I didn't know some of that story. You're touching on those early days when you started out. I believe you actually started out in a recession. Is that right? Yes. Where you had, uh, you know, everything against you. How in those sort of first five years, let's just say, did you gain traction and get noticed? Yes. People often ask, you know, should you start a business in a recession? And I always say, if you've got a good idea and if you're committed to take that leap and make that commitment to start in business, because that is a huge challenge for most people when you have another, op you're always giving up something else. In my case, I could have been working for Goldman Sachs or whoever and, and getting on a career path and you're taking that risk to go it alone as an entrepreneur. So that's the first commitment that you need to make. And once you make that commitment, you've got to give it a go. Mm -hmm. And with, with Cobra, when we started Cobra, first, of course, was to get the brewery to, to make the product that I wanted because it didn't exist. The name didn't exist. Mm -hmm. We had to come up with our own name, and that's a story in itself. But it's our most valuable asset as a Cobra beer brand. And the recipe, to come up with that recipe to deliver this extra smooth, less gassy taste was not easy. And again, luckily, we had the best brewmaster in India who had a PhD from Prague. They're biochemists who knew everything about brewing beer. And we sat in the laboratory and sat in the brew house and created Cobra beer from scratch with all these ingredients more than any most other beers. So we have malted barley and rice and maize and wheat and three varieties of hops. And it's triple brewed and double fermented. So that gives it this taste and texture. And then you've got this great product, but an unknown brand. And I say you've got to cross the credibility gap. Right. So when you have an unknown product, an unknown brand, and you yourself are unknown. I mean, I was in my 20s. Mm -hmm. I craved some gray hair so people would take me more <laughs> seriously. And, and you go in. And, and what makes you able to cross that credibility gap? And every entrepreneur goes through this. When nobody knows you, nobody knows your brand. You have zero credibility. And I think you can cross it if you have faith and passion and belief and confidence in your idea, in your product, in your brand, because that gives people the faith and the confidence to trust you, to give you a chance. Mm. And I had that faith. And when we started selling the product, again, when you're selling an unknown product, it's got to be in some way different and better. Mm -hmm. I mean, how much more cluttered and competitive a market can you go into than the beer market? I mean, beer's been around for thousands of years. This is a very open market, Britain. And the good thing about an open market is anyone can have a go. Mm -hmm. The difficult thing is there's huge competition. Mm -hmm. And in beer, the competitors are not only lots, but huge mm -hmm. and well-established mm -hmm. and ancient. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stella Artois mm -hmm. was founded in the 14th century. Mm -hmm. Kingfisher that had been 
here from India, the biggest beer brand in India, had already been here for eight years before we started. They were already brewing here for five years. They were draft Kingfisher and thousands of outlets. Every Indian restaurant we went into would have Carlsberg already on sale as well. And so how do you break through when you're against such huge competition, when you have zero money, we had no marketing money. I was going to say, did you not? Yes, you were. I had 20,000 pounds of student debt to pay off when I started in business. There was no yes. money to advertise. Yes. We couldn't afford branded beer glasses. I mean, that's the basic <laughs> item of marketing you need yeah. as a beer. We couldn't even afford those. So how do you then break through? And the way you do it is by having something that's different and better. And in our case, our product had this differentiation in its taste that would enable it to go really well with all food, in particular curry. And you also have to have a strategy. And my strategy was a breakthrough strategy. What's the point of trying to get into a Tesco's or a Sainsbury's when you have no advertising, you have no marketing, mm -hmm. your product would just sit there. And even if you're a brilliant salesperson, it would just gather dust. So I said, I've got to get people to discover my product. And Indian restaurants, people want this cold, refreshing, smooth product that doesn't exist. And Indian food was getting more and more popular. Uh, when we started Cobra, there were 6,000 Indian restaurants in the UK. Today, there are 12,000. So I knew this was a growing industry and British people loved curry. So I said, if I can get my product in front of customers on the restaurant tables, they will discover my product. Then I'll get into supermarkets, then I'll get into pubs and I'll start exporting it around the world. And one step further, I've got to get the best Indian restaurants to stock my product first, because if they stock it, then the others will say, oh, if it's good enough for the best restaurants, we also want to stock it. So I went straight to the top, to the best restaurants, and I persuaded them to sell my product because it was different and because it was better. And, and the other, other aspect you realized earlier on is not only is it against all odds, but you have to constantly turn obstacles into opportunities. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. for us, simple obstacles were our double-sized Cobra beer bottle. Because in India, 90% of beer, even now, is sold in double-sized 650 ml bottles. That's just that. the way the bottles are recycled. And that's how beer is sold around India. And the brewery said, we cannot give you small bottles because we don't produce them. And draft beer is out of the question. We're not going to send kegs of beer yes. to all the way from Bangalore to the UK and empty kegs all the way back. It's commercially unviable. So small bottles, if you're around in one year, we'll give you some small bottles because it's changed parts in the breweries, new mold. It's quite an mm -hmm. investment. Mm -hmm. And true to their promise, they did. But initially, they said, you just make the most of these big bottles. And when we used to go to the restaurants, they'd say, we want small bottles of draft. What are you going to do with these big bottles? And you turn that obstacle into an advantage where you say, ah, these big bottles, that's how beer is sold in India. This is the authentic way beer is sold in India. Ah. And on top of that, we created a new concept where in, in Indian restaurants, people share their food. You order dishes for the table and people share the food. With these big bottles, your waiters can leave the bottles on the table and people can share the beer like you share a bottle of wine. That means the waiters are then freed up to do other work and the customers will share the beer. The next thing that will happen is people at other tables will say, what are they drinking? It looks like a bottle of wine. It's not a bottle of wine. What is a bottle of beer? I'll try some. And it spreads like wildfire around the restaurants. And that was an obstacle that we turned into an opportunity. We were first movers with those double-sized bottles. You walk into any supermarket now and you will find Peroni or Stella or Heineken or any leading beer brand in the double-sized bottles. And we were the first movers. It all started from your ability to turn that issue 
into your USP, a part of your marketing, yes. in a sense. And you, you spotted this gap in the uh, in the market. And I think a lot of small businesses that I speak to stumble on that business idea. They just don't know where to start. Would you have any advice to entrepreneurs out there in terms of that starting point? What does that starting point look like? The ideal starting point is having one big idea, which I had. But even in my case, I couldn't start with that big idea. It was too big. Uh, I thought it would require investment, a bit of experience. And I, to that extent, through luck, had the opportunity to start my big idea. But I would not even have got there if I hadn't started with polo sticks and with the fabrics and with the garments. So those all got me, got that flywheel turning. And it's like serendipity, the definition of the word serendipity. Serendipity is seeing what everyone else sees, but thinking what no one else has thought. Mm. And that's luck when determination meets opportunity. So you're not even going to see that opportunity unless you're in the game looking for that opportunity. So my, my, my advice would be start off with something and it will lead eventually to something big. And, and you've got to be prepared to fail. There were ideas I tried that failed. And, and you've got to be able to learn from those failures and move on. And the most important thing is once you've started implementing your big idea, you know very, very soon whether it's going to work or not. In our case, we got literally almost 100% reorder rate. So once, oh once you get that reordering, customers actually want your product and you know they're liking it, then you just extrapolate that into a global beer brand one day and you just keep going. I mean, you say that, you, say, you make it sound easy. What was the point that you knew you were onto something? But when did you turn around? Within, were you with your business partner within, at the time? Within, well, I knew I was onto something the moment I embarked on the project. I had complete faith that I was going to create something. Yes, that you have to, yeah, don't and, you? Yes. And, and you know, I, without um, wanting to boast, I, I, I said one of the things at Harvard Business School, um, uh, an anecdote from my executive education there, uh, they said, you've got to be uh, confident, but not arrogant. You've got to be ambitious but also humble. You've got to be humbitious. So anytime I boast, it's humbitiously. You know, I knew. <laughs> what a brilliant, brilliant way of describing well, it. I knew I was going to, I was onto something with this idea. And I wanted to create one of the best beers ever to have been produced. And I say, who are you? To say, you don't know anything about brewing beer. Well, you're going to create one of the best beers in the world that's never existed before. Yes, that's my dream. And I'm going to do it. And I've done it. I've got 101 gold medals. So I knew that. But the, the best confidence you get is when you get those reorders. The big distributors refuse to even meet us. Mm. But once, a hundred of the top restaurants in London were regularly reordering Cobra that they were supplying, those restaurants, they came to us and say, yes, now we'd like to stock your product. Oh, um, so you have to goodness. get to that point. You have to get to that point. I'd love to talk to you about one of my favourite subjects, and that's creativity. You were told throughout your childhood, I think, by your parents and your teachers that you were not creative because you were, what I've heard is useless, useless at art. However, you now say it's actually one of your greatest talents, but you only discovered that when you were running your own business. Do you think that creativity is a vital um, part of being an entrepreneur? And how can we harness this? Would you say that everyone has the ability to be creative? I ask a, a question when giving 
talks um, around the world, including at, at business schools, uh, at universities, to different types of audiences, not just uh, business audiences, entrepreneurs. And we'll ask the audience, how many of you think you're creative? And the, on average around the world, whether it's uh, 50 people or 300 people or however large it is, less than half the hands will go up on average because people think that on the whole thing they're not creative and I was told I was not creative as you've just said uh, and I believed I was not creative because I was not good at art and I was not good at music and it was only later when I when I started in business as an entrepreneur that I realized that one of the most important skills required is the ability to be creative and I also realized I myself was I'm very creative and it had just been suppressed and never been unleashed. And I think it's so important to give people the confidence to be creative. And this can be done if it was part of our educational curriculum, right down from a primary school child, that the teachers tried to encourage their children to be creative and to unleash that creativity all the way through education. And then regardless of what you end up doing, whether you're a civil servant or an entrepreneur, that mindset of the ability mm -hmm. to be creative and innovative can only benefit whatever you're going to do in life. And I think we're missing out on a big opportunity, uh, not just in the UK, but around the world. And why do you think it's changed? Why do you think it is suppressed and, and sort of not championed? It is, again, this is a generation-long way of channeling people into learning, going to the next stage, moving on to the next rung of the ladder. Um, I think compared with other countries, our form of education is very good because we encourage children to challenge and to question and to reason. And that is important. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is taking that further mm -hmm. by actually getting children, and I say children, to not just question and think, but try within themselves to come up with solutions mm -hmm. and, and, and be innovative and creative. And it, I think it's so important because otherwise you, it, it is the essence of moving on in the world. Yeah, I mean, if, 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 if you have no innovation, no creativity, you will, we wouldn't be where we are today. Mm -hmm. The world stagnates. Mm. And throughout throughout history, we've had it, it, innovation is what's made us move to the next level mm. in, in terms of whether it's the concept of flight to going to space um, in, in basic terms. If somebody's not creative or innovative, now, and, and I, I mean, I'm, we could talk about this for hours, but you go back to Leonardo da Vinci trying to grapple with this concept of flight centuries ago, didn't actually happen. But that that mindset persisted in some people. And eventually, it's only just over 100 years ago that it actually happened. Mm. And once you get to that level and you unleash that creativity, look at the, the exponential curve to how much further you can go. And, and now, today, it's even more important because with the way the internet in just two decades has transformed our lives, the potential to actually apply this creativity is endless mm. that didn't exist before. So I think it's even more important. 
As I looked at the business landscape, I realised there was so much wisdom out there which hadn't been uncovered. And yet, sharing it with the world would empower so many. It's why at Holly & Co, we have created a new world you can see, watch, read and listen to today. With a single aim, to support you as you navigate your own steps on your business journey, bringing you advice and business inspiration like never before. The Advice Hub is a free online library, somewhere to go when feeling lost or needing some guidance. We delve into lessons learnt the hard way so you don't have to with these articles, written by myself alongside experts and other small business founders who share their own experiences. We cover everything from top marketing tips on how to increase your email subscribers to the truth behind working with your partner or how about overcoming parental guilt as a female founder, a subject I know will resonate. I'd love for you to go and experience it for yourself. So after this podcast, head over to holly.co and see what advice is most useful to you. And if there's something you'd like to see us cover, please do get in touch. You had a very academic upbringing, as you've mentioned, but from listening to you before and researching you, you have a lot of principles, a lot of business philosophies, and they don't teach you a lot of what you've said at business school. Where do these come from? A lot of our basic values, we have our parents to thank for, in my case. And I think that influence can be hugely strong, particularly until your mid-teens, where that influence um, can lay a foundation for life. Your community, if you come from a community which has an influence on you or a religion that has an influence. I come from one of the smallest communities in the world, the Zoroastrian Parsis. People now have sort of started to hear about the Zoroastrian Parsis because about this film that's been made about Freddie Mercury. Mm. Because Freddie Mercury was a Zoroastrian Parsi. And I thought, what? I never heard of that before. And then people in the UK, now we say, well, Jaguar Land Rover, Tatas, who own Jaguar Land Rover, they're Parsis. Oh, I didn't know about this. Now, what about the Parsis? And but the Zoroastrian religion is the first of the monotheistic, monotheistic religions. It goes back to 1500 BC. And it's the origin and foundation of the modern religions of the world. When I say modern religions of Christianity, of Islam, uh, Judaism was not monotheistic originally. It's, they're very similar. And Zoroastrianism is supposedly the base of it all. And and the Zoroastrian community being very, very small. I mean, there are only 100,000 Parsis in the world. And in India, there are 59,000 of us out of 1.25 billion. And yet, anywhere you go in India, if you say you're Parsi, people know who a Parsi is because they've done extremely well as a community. And, and they've done well with the right principles because part of the ethos is action in this life but also putting back into the community, not just your own community, but the wider community. So the whole aspect of righteousness and doing things the right way is instilled in you. Even if you're not very religious, just being brought up in that community, the influence of people in that community, you can't but be affected by it. And in my case, my great-grandfather, my mother's grandfather, was a very successful entrepreneur, built up his own business, conducted a lot of public service, a lot of charitable work, became a member of the Indian equivalent of the House of Lords, um, which I've now followed in his footsteps. Now, his, 
his achievements and the way he lived his life and the way he looked after his family four generations later inspired me. Gosh, it's these beliefs. I, I mean, what you're describing, I also sometimes, when I talk to small businesses, I try to describe this unquantifiable magic. It's the magic you find in incredible businesses. But I'm often sort of shut down and a lot of times we feel scared about being soulful. We feel scared about talking about the softer points that are around us in business and in it's spiritual. I I'd love to hear you talk about this, the more spiritual side of business, as I think it's so important when running a company based on passion, like so many businesses listening to this today. For example, I know you believe that if you start a business based in good or to do good in the world, the universe will have your back. It will help you succeed. There is the picture that a lot of people have had and this is not now, going back in time, of the businessman who's really successful, but on the other hand, ruthless, bullying, in it for themselves. And there's no taking away their monetary success, but nobody likes them. Not even the people who work in their companies Nobody respects them. So is that the way to do it? And sadly, forever people have done it that way. And there's another way, and that is to build a business and do well, but do well together, to partner with everybody that you work with. I mean, the attitude that I've always taken to this day is it's not as if I, I you know, you worship your customers and you bully your suppliers, which is what other type of business person would do. It's you partner with everybody. You partner with your customers, your suppliers, your accountants, your lawyers, your advertising agency. You partner with people and you don't treat them as I'm the client, you know, um, I'm the buyer. And it's a completely different mindset. And then if you also look upon your your people that you, you work with, with Cobra, when we were a growing small entrepreneurial company, it was always like a family. And it was always very multinational. It was like a mini United Nations, people from lots of different countries from all over the world. And there was always a buzz. And you, you, that atmosphere, which is a sort of family atmosphere, but yet it's serious. You're mm. all mm. driven. People would work all hours. Nobody said you have to stay at late or nine in the evening. People would do it if they, they wanted to. Um, and it, it, it's that's something that you can't order someone to do. My father was a general in charge of 350,000 people. He went to war. Um, he saw the most horrific things. He had it. people, and troops under his command killed. Um, you know, he faced, escaped death very narrowly several times. Um, that's a different way you give those orders. But even in that military where you can order somebody to die in effect, there are people who die for you without you having to order them if you're a true leader. If you're mm. a true general, that your troops love you, you don't have to order them. They'll do anything for you. That's the difference between the general who has orders that the troops hate and the general who doesn't, who doesn't even need to order and they'll do it because they love you. And you can't buy that love. You've got mm. to create that. 
And it's, it's, you've got a, a, you know, that, that cliched words like empowering that I don't particularly like. It's, it's much more about when you trust people. I, I quite often after three months get um, people who started Cobra and say, right, I just want to sit down five minutes. Tell me what is it different in this company to places you work before? And you say, you know, say immediately the common thread. Common thread was, you know, other companies, I was in particularly big companies, you were told what to do and you were given very narrow barriers and you had to ask permission for everything and uh, invariably things you wanted to do or you had an idea was shot down and uh, and you just felt completely boxed in. And here's, wow, we can do any, we can come up with ideas, we can make them happen mm. and it's great and we can do it quickly and you never stop us, you encourage us. And that difference um, is what it's all about. As you mentioned, you come from a long line of leaders. You mentioned your father was a commander in chief of the Indian Army, as you said, in charge of 350,000 people. Your grandfather was one of the first Indians to be commissioned as an officer at Sandhurst. I read that your great grandfather was also a very successful person, but had a family motto on his coat of arms, which said, aspire and achieve, which I know you've now adopted. First of all, I think that every family needs a motto. So I'm definitely going to go home and and sort of work out what my family's is. But what lessons did you learn from this dynasty of leadership? It must have been incredible to be brought up with this all behind you. What would you say, you've, you've touched on this leadership, but what would you say if you look back at yourself makes you that person that can enchant people to be the best versions of themselves? I would say I, I'm, I'm very privileged to come from um, a privileged background, but not with money. So Indian Army officers got paid very, very badly in those days. So I knew my father could never support me uh, monetarily. But I had this background of people who'd achieved enormously and hugely in their careers. So if you look at a family tree on my father's side, it's generals and admirals and um, heads of the police, the equivalent of the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police here, uh, etc. So all these people who achieved so much, my great-grandfather on my, my, my mother's side, my, my grandfather, my mother's father, who came to University of Birmingham and learned how to fly while he was a student and then jo- joined the Royal Indian Air Force and served as a squadron leader right through to the end of the Second World War. All these individuals who 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 really did so well, governors of states, ambassadors. And you can be inspired by that. And I always say, wow, I'm so lucky to be inspired by all these people who did. And each one of them, and I was so lucky to have known many of them personally, uh, and they were different characters. Not one of them was exactly the same as the Mm. other person. All these uncles and cousins and grandparents, they were all very different characters, but they all managed to excel. And that's when I realized there is no one way to do this. The, the only most important thing is that attitude. And if you have the ability, which if you're God willing one does, what makes you achieve is the, the attitude. And that's why the motto aspire and achieve. And I added against all odds with mm-hmm. integrity. And so our, our motto at Cobra has been to aspire and achieve against all odds with integrity. 
So the aspiring achievers from my great-grandfather, and I added the other part, because it is invariably against all odds. And there's no point doing it unless you do it the right way. And, uh, and, and that goes back to, you said, you know, the values. And in my case, the, the integrity part is really, really important. Uh, and I remember the Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan, Rowan Williams, who's now Lord Williams, one of my fellow crossbenchers, when he came to speak at the Zoroastrian Centre in London and I gave the welcoming speech, and he then spoke and he said, Lord Billamore has used the word integrity uh, twice in his speech, and the Zoroastrian Parsi community are renowned for their integrity. And the word integrity, he said, comes from the Latin and Greek word integra, integrum, which means wholeness. You cannot practice integrity as an individual unless you are complete. If you cannot practice if you're fragmented in front of the light. You can only practice integrity if you're whole and complete. Oh, goodness. I'm taking every word in that you say, and I just I want to pause at certain points to take it all in. But you talk about values there, and I was going to lead on to that. You've built wonderful relationships with your colleagues, as you said, and suppliers, your team that you work with. Actually, arranging today has just been a complete pleasure. Your team is just absolutely wonderful. From reading about how you have built such decade-long relationships all around you, um, you've mentioned how empires are built built on trust. What would you say are the company values now today in your business? And have you built the company culture around this trust element? Is it imperative to be successful? Trust is something that underpins any successful relationship. You know, whether it's a a marriage, whether it's um, in a corporate world, I think trust is crucial. My business partner, Arjun Reddy, who I started in business with, were very different people. And he left after six years for his own personal reasons on his terms. And the one thing looking back on it, uh, we lived and worked together for six years. The office was always in the same building. So we'd, you know, we'd have our bedrooms on one floor and the office on the other <laughs> floor in Fulham and Chelsea. Quite long hours, I'd say that. From first thing when we woke up (laughs) till late at night, every single day. So we worked together, lived together, and of course we wouldn't agree on many things. But the most important thing uh, was I trusted him completely. And I would go so far as to say I would have trusted him with my life. And to this extent, to this day, years later, we're still the best of friends. So that trust is crucial. Now today... Fast forward, I've had for almost a decade a joint venture with Molson Coors, one of the largest brewers in the world, $12 billion New York Stock Exchange listed company. Most important thing, it's very, yes, it's very successful, but underpinning that success is the trust. As joint venture partners, I trust them completely. And I know they trust me completely. And that means you have a very open Mm. relationship uh, where they will never do anything behind my back. They will never not consult me. And I trust them. I know they will never take a shortcut. I know they will never, ever try and do me out of anything. That makes it, you know, then you can challenge each other. You can disagree on things. And that's great as long as it's constructive. But you can't do all that if you don't have that underpinning trust. 
It's interesting this day and age with everything moving so quickly, with everything that small businesses are dealing with. The sort of art of built it, building relationships can be overlooked, especially when we're all siloed in our bedrooms or we're working alone and we're not networking. You can be fearful and so trust can sometimes go out the window. And I know personally, for instance, my team, they have my back and there's nothing like it. Um, I heard recently you talk about just generally in business terms that you had an overdraft when you started. And I heard you say that you would regularly go over that overdraft. Can you just touch on that? Yes, we. this was in our very early days. We had a um, NatWest branch, which was walking distance around the corner from our office in the Fulham Palace Road. It was on the Fulham Road. And uh, the manager uh, there, I just remember he was a senior manager, his name was Jim Messam, and he was our first proper bank manager, the second bank account that we had. And our limit was £11,000, I remember, overdraft limit. And we would consistently go over that. At one stage, it hit £26,000. My goodness. And he said, he called me and he said, do you realise something? He said, if you let me down... I'm coming up to retirement. I'm, my whole career is going to be ruined if you let me down. But I trust you. Mm. And I'll never forget that. And he trusted me and I never let him down. Now that, you, know, you don't, today unfortunately don't get that type of bank manager anymore. Um, that's how important it, it, it is. Lastly, seeing as you're the first Lord, I've had the honour of interviewing on my podcast. I couldn't not touch on politics in our conversation. We're going through such a very uncertain time at the moment with Brexit, and I follow you on Twitter and have been very inspired watching you speak in the House of Lords. I know it can be, it is a scary time for people at the moment, and especially if you're running your own business. What are your thoughts on the current situation and how it might affect businesses in this country? Or are there, there things that we can do to prepare or to campaign for? I've been very open about being, for years, sceptical about Europe in, in many ways. I've never liked the way the European Parliament works or how disconnected our members of European Parliament are with the public. I mean, most people don't even know who their MEPs are. Um, I've never thought the Euro was a good idea, and I think we've been lucky as a country to not be in the Euro and we've seen in the financial crisis how it doesn't work and one size cannot fit all. And then Schengen. Uh, I used to think we lost out by not being a member of the free movement, one visa for 26 countries. And now I realize actually the UK and Ireland are fortunate from the migration crisis point of view and from a security point of view from being outside Schengen. On the other hand, I weighed up very, very carefully at the time of the referendum, which we must remember is now almost three years ago. It was announced in February 2016. I weighed it up and the pros and cons of Europe and of Britain being in Europe. And I realized, from my point of view, it was very clear that on balance, Britain has been far better off being a member of the European Union. And in the future, we'd be far better off being a member in spite of all the faults and the bureaucracy is another aspect uh, of the European Union. In spite of all that, I said, without a doubt, it would be madness to leave and far better to remain. And since the referendum result, 
which is a very narrow result of 52-48, I've been battling, because I believe passionately, that it would not be the right thing for our country um, to lose out from the benefits of being part of the European Union in every aspect. Three years ago, this was not an important issue for the public at all. Uh, three years ago, Britain was at the top table of the world. We had the fastest growing economy in the Western world. And if you looked at the cumulative growth rate of countries in the European Union, we'd actually done really well by being part of Europe. We've actually had our cake and we've been eating it too. Mm -hmm. We're not for further, reunif for further unification. We've said that very clearly. And all the scare stories about Turkey joining, um, which is decades away and not even on the cards of the way things are going at the moment, the, the pictures of the migration crisis, very sad though that is, and tragic, um, it has receded greatly from where it was in 2015, um, but it scared people. And the whole, what I found is the, the, not just the deception and the lies of the campaign, is that stepping back from it and not appreciating what we've had. And now we know, I mean, that should maybe be a slow slogan, now we know what the true facts are, that the European Union migrants, three million of them, have actually benefited our economy. We've got a 4% unemployment rate. Without them, we'd have an acute labor shortage. And these are people who've not taken away British jobs. The logic is, without them, our economy would not have been able to grow. And these are not just low-skilled workers. These are across the board, from agricultural workers, hospitality industry, construction workers. Our public services, they're not in a burden on our public services. They're net contributors to our economy. And on top of that, many of them work in the public services. And without them, our public services would possibly collapse, including in the NHS and care sector, where there are 130,000 people from the European Union who work in the NHS and care sector, let alone the City of London, let alone academics. Many of our universities, 20% of academics are from the European Union, let alone international students. We're at about 450,000 international students, 130,000 from the European Union. So this whole migration aspect, I think, has not been looked at properly and has not been conveyed uh, the benefits of it. When it comes to European law, I've been a member of parliament for 12 years in the House of Lords, and I've seen that the legislation that affects us on a day-to-day -day is created by us here in Westminster. There is European Union regulation, but we've actually wanted a lot of it, whether it's environmental regulations or consumer protection legislation, it's all for the benefit of our citizens. And we've only been against 5% in 45 years of EU legislation if you actually really drill it down this, the research. And 95% of it actually we want. And European Court of Justice, we as a country have taken many cases of the European Court of Justice and we win them. So, and most of the law never goes to the European Court of Justice. It goes as far as our Supreme Court. So again, this misnomer that they're controlling us with their laws is on a practical basis, not real. And then the money aspect. The money aspect, again, eight billion pounds a year is what we pay to the European Union net. That is 1% of our government expenditure per year. 1% of our government expenditure per year. I, I would pay that just for the peace that we have had in Europe for all the decades. And then on top of all that, our youth and our youngsters, 90% of them who want to, to actually remain, 
Two million of them, we have a birth rate of 800,000 in this country, two million of them are now old enough to vote who were not old enough to vote in 2016. What and would they, they say? And they had no say then, and it's their future, and they should have a say. So the demographics have changed, and things have now come to light. People now know much more than they knew three years ago. It's only democratic, because democracy should be dynamic. This decision is three years out of date. Um, the best way to resolve this really would be to go back to the people, say, now you know all the facts, now you know how difficult it is to leave the European Union, and now you maybe appreciate a lot of things we have in the European Union, and keeping our own United Kingdom union together, because this has threatened our very existence, particularly with regard to Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland is the Achilles heel of Brexit, and the backstop is a necessity to maintain our union, let alone Scotland now, also saying they'd rather stay in Europe and they voted to stay in Europe. So I want to keep the United Kingdom together. I want all the benefits of the EU for our businesses, for our citizens, and for our youth, for their future. And, and I hope that we'll be able to remain, or at the worst, have a Norway EEA-type option, uh, which would be the least worst option. But the best by far, every analysis shows, would be to remain in the European Union. Thank you so much for giving me such a clear answer. Why can't everyone else explain the situation we are in in such an eloquent, simple way? We're coming towards the end, and I use the analogy that running your business is like a roller coaster, an epic roller coaster, the highs, the lows. I was wondering, what would you say has been one of your proudest moments running this business? Looking back on, 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 a, on a journey, and I always say, it's a bit cliched, but success is not a destination, it's a journey. And as you very correctly said, it is not a smooth, linear uh, trajectory. It is very much a bumpy, up and down, roller coaster um, journey. In my case, I've nearly lost my business three times. And uh, you know, if you're lucky enough to make it through and, and survive and carry on, is a feat in, in itself. So when you look back on that journey and say, which were the really, you know, the things I'm most proud of? Uh, and I think, without a doubt, one thing one, one has, and I say this ambitiously, is creating a product, Cobra, that people genuinely love. Um, I, I can go to any corner of this country and I could speak to anyone. And A, everyone knows Cobra beer, but more importantly, B, they love it. And to create something that people genuinely love uh, and that is a household name is something I'm, I'm very proud of. And, and to create it against all the odds, against the giants, against all the obstacles, with no money, um, you know, um, with people telling you not to do it, with my own father saying, you know, you're becoming an import-export wala, you know, get a proper job. <laughs> of course, he meant well and he became my biggest fan once we succeeded. But it is against all the odds. And I couldn't have done it. I could not have done it. Really, there are three things. Uh, as I say, when to, to, to get through any crisis and, and to get to the other side, I found there are three things that are important. One is having a strong brand. And I think building a strong brand is really important. Whatever business you're in, it's not just consumer brands. It's, if you're in a B2B business, it's just as important. And the Cobra Beer brand is very strong and resilient. The second is to have the support of your loyal team 
and, and, and family. So there are people in this company who've been with me for two decades. Um, my head of sales, Samson Sohel, has been with me for 25 years. And he's been by my side through all the ups and downs. And without the support of someone like that, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I mean, it's just incredible, that loyalty, that... Again, you can't buy these things. These are priceless. And, and uh, you know, I would do anything for him and his family. I mean, anything. And I know he'd do the same. Uh, and and, and that, that support will get you through any problems. Next is support of your family. Very important. My wife I met one year after I started Cobra. So she's been by my side through all the ups and downs. Anytime we've been through the worst of scenarios, I'll never forget how she always said to me, we're in this together. So you know when somebody's there together. I mean, that support is phenomenal. So brand, team and family support. And finally, the values, the integrity. There's no point doing all this, succeeding by doing the wrong thing. I'd rather fail and do the right thing than succeed and do the wrong thing. Mm. So those are the... Do, I don't know if that answers your question. It but. sure does. <laughs> it sure does. And you touched on losing your business nearly three times. And what would you say has been a low that you can say has been one of your darkest times in this roller coaster? I mean, there have been many, many horrible times. Uh, going back to the early days when you, you, know, you literally run out of money completely. There's not, not, not a penny in your wallet. All your accounts are above or above their limits, and your credit cards are up to their limits, and that's it. You're out of your, and you 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 feel really down in the dumps and gloomy, and and the next morning you wake up and you find a way out of it. So I think you've got to have that never give up attitude, and the and I would say the greatest characteristic of an entrepreneur is the guts to do it in the first place, but also the guts to carry on and never give up when others would give up. Uh, so. I think those those tough times have required that resilience and belief and guts to get through. And you know, the three times I nearly lost my business. Those were horrible times, awful, awful times. And and they would not be things that would last. These crises will invariably last for a year to get mm. out and come out the other side. And those are really tough times uh, when when these three things come into play: the brand, your team, and family support and the values that help you get through those crises. Before I ask you to read your letter to your younger self, I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. I knew this podcast was going to be a very special one. I never forgot, I think it was two, three years ago, sitting um, on a panel and listening to you speak then. And I've, uh, we must speak about you weekly in my office. It makes me so confident and, and inspired to have such a positive, hardworking, experienced person like yourself in the House of Lords campaigning for a better future. And knowing my community... I think there might quickly be a hashtag starting, yeah. campaigning for you to be Prime Minister. Have you ever thought of that? Um, but thank you so much for your time. It has been a complete honour, one of my, my highlights in my career. And I just wanted to pass over to you to read your letter that I know you've prepared. Um, but thank you very much again. Thank you. It's a privilege and honour for me. And you've been so kind to me. I really appreciate that. Thank you thank very you. much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Over to you. All right. So now you want me to read this out? Oh, I'd love you to. Um, right. Uh, be adaptable. 
as the child of an army officer, you will move every couple of years to different places. From Kerala in South India, to the deserts of Rajasthan, to Delhi, as well as to the mountain regions of northern India. You will spend your time at seven different schools and you will have to be able to adapt, to learn to make new friends and adjust quickly to new places. Don't be afraid to question the norm, to stand up and speak up and find proactive solutions. You learn this at a very young age when you protest having to learn the language Malayalam of the state of Kerala at your Jesuit school. Your parents will tell you not to question it and to learn the subject because you've been ordered to. But you realize that it's not going to be of any use to you when your father's boasted out of Kerala in a couple of years' time. So you then suggest to your parents, why can't they teach you Hindi instead? And your parents ask the school, a Hindi teacher is then employed and 20 other children want to learn Hindi and it's useful to everyone. And it came out of you protesting and not accepting the norm. And Hindi has been useful to you for the rest of your life. This attitude of rebelling, if you may call it, and finding an alternative will be crucial when you're an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurs create things that don't exist, things that are different and better. They go against the grain. Have faith in this and belief in what you're going to be doing. And remember what your grandfather told you when at a young age you lost a tennis match against a player who was not as good as you and your grandfather told you off and said, why did you let that boy win? And you made excuses. And your grandfather, who was one of the first Indians to be commissioned at Sandhurst to be an officer in the British Army, pulled you aside and said, never ever go on that court again unless you're willing to do your best. In fact, in life, never do anything unless you're prepared to give it your everything. You will remember these words in your early venture selling polo sticks to Harrods and Lillywhites, where the buyers don't even give you an appointment and you have to persevere. You will remember it when you came to England as a 19-year-old student and your passport was stamped like every other in young Indian's passport saying immigration check required. And you went with your father to the passport office and protested, saying, I do not want the stamp. It'll hamper my ability to travel. And in spite of it being not the norm, the passport officer agreed and removed the stamp. The taking no for an answer will help you when you're going to sell an unknown Indian beer against competition, huge competition. You will move to the UK where, as an immigrant, you will be competing with people who've been born and brought up in that country, setting up a business from scratch with 20,000 pounds in debt, working from a kitchen table, rolling up your sleeves, delivering beer door to door in a battered Citroen de Chevaux, which cost you 295 pounds, needing push starting every day and eventually failing its MOT three times. And then from that start, you will be in a joint venture with a $12 billion global brewer. 
learning from the experiences, starting a business from scratch. You will face tough times in your business and nearly lose it three times, but it is a strong brand, the support of your team and family and the right values and the support of your wife that will get you through these three consistent aspects getting you through. You will embark on lifelong learning. You will realize the learning never stops. The skills you learn as an entrepreneur, you will be able to apply in public life, whether it's the government's New Deal Task Force, the National Employment Panel, and eventually joining the House of Lords as one of its youngest members, trying to make a difference. And your passion for education will end up engaging with education, not just as a student, but as a chancellor for university. It is your great-grandfather and his achievements that will have influenced you throughout your career. He was an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, and a member of India's Upper House, and you will adapt his motto for yourself and your business to aspire and achieve against all odds with integrity. I think one of the things that I will take out of this is you've never accepted no. You've never accepted no. And it, it, it brings tears to my eyes because whenever I speak to small businesses, I always tell them, you know, have guts. Don't accept no for an answer. There is always a way. And I think sitting opposite you today, definitely I knew was going to be a highlight, but I didn't realize how much it was. And I thank you so much you. for sharing so much of your soul with us today. And it will inspire so many people. So well, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Gosh, you've been so um, meticulous in your preparation and, and the questions have been excellent. So thank you very much. Thank privilege. you privilege. very much. Privilege too. Thank you. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, which I really hope you did, I think you'll love my chat with Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, founder of The Black Farmer. Search Conversations of Inspiration wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed listening, if it's helped or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support really does mean the world to me. It helps spread the word and will inspire more people to build a life they love. And for all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Mm-hmm.